Okay. Okay. So welcome to this Soul on Fire podcast where I, I'm Mochukunda, interview leaders and living legends in the fields of uh, conscious art, uh, spiritual science, and holistic health. And I am joined with Mahatma. Uh, Mahatma has been practicing bhakti yoga for over four decades. Five. Five, over five decades. He's written books on the subject. Uh, he's been um, delivering workshops both online through his YouTube channel and in person, um, which I find very practical and inspiring. And um, yeah, just really inspired by your work. Thank you so much for all you do. Um, <clears throat> so welcome Mahatma to the show. First, can you tell us a little bit about your story? How did you come into contact with this spiritual path? So I grew up in California. In this, uh, came of age in the 60s. So somehow or other, the atmosphere at that time was that people were looking for alternatives, and I was also one of them. But for me especially, I had this, this burning need to understand you know, to answer the why questions. Why? Why am I here? Why do I exist at all? What, and then the what questions. What am I supposed to do? And, you know, what happens after you die? And even why do you have to die? Like those questions, which obviously we don't learn much about in school, if at all. So I was, a, you know, when I started studying spirituality, I was a student university. The thing is, you know, when I was younger, if you ask me, well, what are you going to do when you're older? I wouldn't say I was going to be practicing spiritual life. That just wasn't there. But in my late teens, it became kind of a, an urge like to find out. Like, okay, I've done a lot of things, so like, why? So I was in university and then I just had no interest because I didn't know why any of this had any relevance to my life because I didn't even know why I was here and I didn't know why what was going to happen when I go. So everything else in between seemed kind of like, what's the point? If <laughs> you don't know that, what's the point of doing anything? But then I had this professor who was a philosophy professor. And this was at uh, one of the most liberal schools in America at one of the most liberal times in the history of America. And he, he frankly told his class, he said, I don't really know anything. So you could imagine, you know, philosophy, you know, after teaching philosophy for 20 years, you, if you're honest, you figure out it's all just people speculating ideas and, and nobody really knows. So he was honest. And he was so honest, he said, really, you don't have to come to my class because I can't really teach you anything. That was, that was, you know, you had an idea what the late 60s were like. Well, that was an example. Wow. So when I when I heard that it was like okay this hits this this hits the ball this hits the target of exactly how I'm thinking and feeling and uh, it made a big impression on me. So you know the saying when the disciple is ready the guru will appear. So I was ready. I really wanted to know. It just it kind of was accumulating, you know, through all our experiences, sex, drugs and rock and roll. You go through it and you go, well, that didn't really work. Okay, sex didn't work, so what's the solution? Have more. No, nah, that didn't really work. Well, what about LSD? Okay, let's do that. Well, that didn't really work. What's the solution? We'll have more. <laughs> we'll, have 
Well, it's not LSD, it's mescaline. It's not mescaline, it's hashish. You know, it's like, that's what all the hippies were about. Uh, rock and roll. Okay, I don't like that band. Let's get more of this. You know, you know. So it's like, I kind of hit a point where it's like, okay, I did that and it didn't work the way I wanted it to work or thought it would work. Or, and so now what? You know, it was like that point. And then that point I was ready. Like, I, I'm like, I'm seeing those things. I've exhausted myself in those. I think for us as hippies, we kind of like lived our whole life in like three years. You know what most people would, all the sexual drugs you take in your entire life. We kind of did that in like a few years. You know? That was kind of, that was kind of the mood, you know? So I kind of felt when I was 18, 19, like, okay, I've done everything. So now what? And then at that point, I read Bhagavad Gita. I got a copy of Bhagavad Gita, which is pretty much, you could say, the essence of Indian philosophy. And that's when everything changed. And I became a monk. I dropped out of everything. It was kind of like, okay, this is what I'm looking for. And then if you say, well, were you planning to be a monk? Like, you know, kids, if you ask them, what do you want to do? And they say, I want to be a fireman. So when, they, when you were five, they ask you, what do you want to do? Do you say, oh, I want to be a monk? No, nobody, no one in the West thinks like that. <laughs> Very few, right? And so it's just interesting that he ended up like that. And um, hey, when people ask what you wanted to do when you were older. I want to be a rock and roll star. Get my guitar. Then you can play. You know, there's a song like that. Right? There was a, a song. You ever heard that song? Do you want to be a rock and roll star? Then listen yeah. to what I say. Get yourself an electric guitar. Yeah, something like that. And learn how to play. So. I haven't actually heard that song, but it sounds like what might be the original of what I've heard on a, a, a YouTube channel called Tim and Eric, where they sing a kind of parody of that song. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I want to be a choo-choo train. It's crazy. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. But but you were a musician, right? Sort of, kind of, yeah. Want to be? <laughs> that was one of my aspirations. Okay. Um, but anyway, you asked what I wanted to do. The answer was I have no idea. Oh. Um, and so when I read Bhagavad Gita, it was, it was like, okay, now I understand purpose of life because it explains it there. Now I understand I'm not a physical being; I'm a spiritual being, and everything just fell into place. And then later on I realized I must have known all this in my past life and it was just, I was just looking for it again. So I think that's why um, I just became a monk because I had no material ambition at that point. It didn't make sense to me. Not that everybody would do that, but it, you, you can be, like I would call it the inner monk. You don't have to do it externally, but inside you give up those things which you know are never going to work for you. I just did the whole thing. Because that culture we were in, it was very antagonistic to spiritual life. It was very degraded. So I felt like I needed to live in an ashram. Right. Because that, yeah, anyway, so. Well, that's a really good segue to what I think we wanted to talk about, right? Which is how to practice spiritual life in an, an atmosphere of that's so antagonistic. Yeah. And I know you you have a bunch of projects. You have quite yeah. a portfolio. <laughs> um, yeah. tell us your most recent kind of projects. Yeah, yeah. well, in a lot of well, different ways. Yeah, I was, you know, 
through my own practice of spiritual life and helping people, so I realized how important it was to be with people who are practicing spiritual life, to be with people who are thinking like you think and trying to achieve what you want to achieve. Because even if you want to go left, if you're around everyone going right, you probably end up going right. And even if you want to go right, if you're around everyone going left, you'll probably left. So the power of environment, the power of association, this is what I've seen in my own spiritual practice and in helping other people. And spiritual practice sometimes is difficult when you're in this environment, like you said, it's so antagonistic to spiritual values. And many, many sincere people, devotees, spiritual practitioners, are trying to go left when the whole world's going right, and sometimes they end up going right because we're weak and we're used to going right. That's what we did all our life. So then I felt, okay, we need to create some some kind of program to support people who are are taking the left turn, which is going against the current of materialistic way of thinking. And that's not easy because it's deeply ingrained. So I felt the need to create programs that can support people in, in what they want to do. And it's very important because in my experience, knowing what to do is not the most important thing. It has to get in your heart. And you have to have an environment that supports it. Because if you just know in your head what to do, but you have habits which are against it, or you don't have an environment that can support it, it's going to be extremely difficult, maybe impossible. And that's why a lot of us do something we don't intend to do. So I felt like, let's create an environment where bring people together who have the same goal, who can create support for one another share with one another, open up to one another, talk about their challenges. That's what you need, I think, now more than ever in your on your spiritual path because there's a lot of crocodiles out there who are going to try to eat you up. When you when you when you turn against you know, you're paddling upstream. The whole the whole world's going this way. Everyone's on their way to the mall to go shopping. And you're trying to say, no, I don't want to do that. Everyone's, you know, living a materialistic life, polluting the atmosphere, just thinking about themselves, and you say, I don't want to do that. But that's how you were raised. And so now you understand it's wrong, but you've got to make this shift in your heart, and that takes time, and you need support of other people. So that's what I've been working on, trying to create that, that kind of environment to make it easier for people who want to do it, because they see how hard it is. Okay. Uh, so what are the ways that you've, You've done that. What are the kinds of environments that you've set up or support networks set up? Um, online, online self-paced courses, books, retreats, workshops, and recently we've set up a support group where people can open and share. In my workshops are like these mini support groups where everybody opens up and talks about things that they never really opened up about or opened up little about or we get them to open up to talk about things they didn't even know were going on inside of them and everyone feels like this is so important to be able to talk so recently we just created a support group for men where they can talk about their issues and their challenges and all the men are finding it so valuable and um, any environment we can create 
that has a clear goal of what everyone's interested in and allowing everybody to talk and share and open up in confidence and be vulnerable. It's so powerful. And one of the beautiful things that I found about this is that because this always comes up is when you share a problem and other people share, you realize other people have the same problem you do. And then you realize, you know, it's not just me. I thought there was something wrong with me. (laughs) And this sounds funny, almost perverted, but you'll find people worse off than you and it makes you feel good. Yeah. (laughs) You thought you were the worst. And you find out there's somebody worse than me. Oh, it's twisted, but it's true. Exactly. I've seen it many, many times. It's like to see another person struggling like you makes you feel good. Yeah. And to see them worse than you in a perverted way, you don't, you're not happy that they're struggling. You're just happy that there's enough, makes you feel human. And it makes you feel like you're not so sick. There's something about, yeah. Not being alone that's comforting. And even more so when you're not as bad as, as others. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing is when you think, you know, if you think you're the only one who has it, then you just like, it's depressing. You don't want to deal with it. You don't want to tell anybody about it because you think everyone's going to reject you. And um, just a message to everybody, we're all the same. We're all raised the same. I mean, you might be in Australia or New Zealand. I'm in America. Someone's in London. I travel the world, and I can guarantee you that everyone in the West pretty much was raised the same. And now, because of the Internet and mass media, everyone's reading the same books in Russia, in India, in China. It's like one universal culture now. So we're all very similar in how we're being programmed by materialistic society. And so in no way are we unique. But when we keep to ourselves, we think, oh, I'm, I have a unique problem. I have a unique challenge. It's not true. We're, what are some of your most um, uh, helpful or popular or what, what are some of the things that people can... Um, come and participate in um, that you'd like to mention specifically? Well, we have an on, we have online courses on forgiveness. And if you go to Bhakti Education, if you just Google Bhakti, or you can write that in the chat, Bhakti Education, um, you can take those courses and uh, just available for free, and we ask if you like, you can give a donation. Yeah, Bhakti courses. Description when we post this. Yeah, Bhakti courses. We have a project called Mantra Project for helping people in meditation. That's online. On, excuse me, that's on Facebook. We have uh, my books on Amazon. I have three books on Amazon. We have a site called Mahatma Wisdom. We have a site called The Sattva Way. We have um, 
I got. I can't. I don't know everything I have to tell you the truth because it's in. It's also different languages we have, but it, we're in Russian. You know, Facebook and Instagram. You can also look Mahatma Das. And then we just started a sexual support group, which um, you could write Mukhachukund about if you're interested. Especially for people who are practicing spiritual life, who are trying to remain sexually controlled. And uh, well, this is an interesting thing also. When you try to control something, sometimes the desire becomes stronger than when you weren't trying to control it. We have, we have, um, often I'm so busy, I don't eat breakfast. Okay. Um, a couple days this week, I ate breakfast at 2 p.m. Because I just, I couldn't, I got so backlogged, I just. Right. And, you know, when I eat, I slow down, so I, I don't want to slow down, so I just, I didn't eat, right? But if you tell me, tomorrow you can't eat till 2 o'clock, I'll be hungry at 7 a.m. <laughs> Because I think, oh, I can't eat, you know. It's like the mind goes, they're going to eat till two. So there's so many times I just fasted like half day, just not thinking about it, doing other things. And then when it comes time, like certain times of the, of the year, we fast. And it comes time to fast. Sometimes I think, oh, I don't know if I can fast. So yeah. there's something, isn't that weird? Yeah. It's something, something about restraining yourself, all of a sudden the desire is stronger. And where you weren't trying to restrain yourself, sometimes you don't think about it. So because I'm in a spiritual organization, I find that because we take vows to do certain things, sometimes the things you're vowing not to do all of a sudden become attractive because you realize I can't do this anymore. Whereas before, you know, it's like your refrigerator's full and you know you could eat anything you want, but you go on a diet and you're like, I'm not going to eat that. But if there's nothing in the refrigerator, oh, no, there's nothing to eat in the house. What am I going to do? You're thinking about food more because it's not there. So we, you know, a, a lot of people in our organization who are practicing bhakti practice celibacy because they're living or even practice sense control, any kind of sense control. They want to be more sense controlled. That's part of yoga. And sometimes when you do that, it's like the desire becomes stronger. It's like, it's very strange psychology. I haven't studied that psychology. I've just observed it. So right. I can't explain it clinically, but I've observed it. Maybe you know something about it, you know, trying to. I just know that I generally want what I can't have. <laughs> and it reminds me of that, um, you know, I can sit in my room all day. Maybe you've heard this quote. But if someone tells me I cannot go outside, that's intolerable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, that's it. You hit it on the head. So we, we've created a, a support group. And what I've realized over the years is that those of us who are practicing spiritual life, we're, we're, we have goals which totally go against the way society is moving. And so it's, it's, it's strange because traditionally – People doing spiritual life would just get out of the city because the city is an environment that's not really conducive to shanti, shanti, om, om, and like that. It's The city is like the place where you make things happen, get it done, get ahead, get your money, get a position, 
get your house and like that. And so if you're not doing that and you're in that environment, sometimes it can be a real challenge. So I, I thought if people are practicing spiritual life, we have to create an environment within that antagonistic environment where we can support one another. Because if we try to do it on our own, really difficult. So we just created this sexual sobriety support group to, for men who want to, as single men, be celibate and also control themselves in marriage. So it's been really great. And then we also started a 12-step program for people who are, are practicing bhakti, but anyone could join, ultimately. So that's really good. And, um, well, let me tell you my story when I joined. This was, this was interesting. The, where I went to school is a place called Berkeley. I don't know if you've all heard about Berkeley, but Berkeley was also named as Berserkley. It was, it's a really, it's like a very crazy place. You know how different cities have different modes? Yeah. You, you go, you know, you go to a certain part of New Zealand or Australia and it's a certain mood, you know, the surfer dude, Harley Wade, you know. <laughs> but you go to, um, I grew up in California and it's like that. It's very similar. But if you go to the East Coast, of the U.S., at least here in Florida, it's not like that at all. It's not like that surfer mood isn't there. It's a different environment. So Berkeley was this very liberal, crazy environment, and it was during the sexual revolution. And it was like everybody was exploring, just letting their senses go, doing everything. And, you know, So there was no commitment anymore between boys and girls. It was just like, just enjoy yourself sexually. And so... I got burned out in that. I got very burned out in that. That was a dead end. And then when I moved in the ashram, one of the principles was celibacy. You'll have no sex. And even though I didn't grow up that way, and even though that wasn't the environment in Berkeley, and even though I was able to live that sexual freedom life, when I finally became celibate, I couldn't believe that I did that. I was like, how did I do this? That was like the first time I heard the devotees were celibate and didn't take drugs. I told myself, oh, I could never do that because I wasn't celibate and I wasn't, and I was taking drugs. And when I first heard them and I said, well, what are the principles? And they said, no meat eating, no gambling. I said, okay, I could do that. No illicit sex. I can't do that. No intoxication. I can't do that. That was kind of, you know, the lifestyle there. But it came to a point in my life where I, I became fed up with that. And it, and I said, I want to do this. I want to try this celibacy thing. And I couldn't believe I did it. And I actually did it because of the association. And I felt kind of like I just like totally conquered myself. I totally mastered myself. And I felt so aloof from that environment in the university that was so pervaded by this, this, the vibes of lust where people weren't concerned about relationships and just, enjoying one another sexually and I felt so good in controlling myself so there's there's a lot to be said about self-control mm. the power and how although it's difficult how how it makes you feel like you find you feel like you're in control of your life so that's how I felt I was really happy even though it was wasn't easy mm. Yeah, the joy, the joy of no sex. I experienced the joy of no sex after the so-called joy of sex. I experienced a higher joy when I was able to say, "Okay, let's let's put that aside and let's do our spiritual life." 
And a lot of men are like that. And so we created this group to support those men who want to do that, control themselves. Which I think is great because it's more respectful to women if they're not thinking of, if that's not the only thing they think about. That's a sign of respect to women. Yeah, um, as you know, Prabhupada, the founder of the Hare Krishna movement and your teacher, um, once said, or once was asked, what would it look like if everyone practiced consciousness? He said, ladies and gentlemen, everyone would that kind of character. So what you're saying, what you're creating is a, a, a culture of respect and non-objectification. And something else you said that rang true for me was that uh, if you want to have an easy life, do, uh, do something hard and if you want to have a hard life just do the easy thing <laughs> yeah yeah want an easy life do the hard thing you want a hard life do the easy thing <laughs> yeah i don't know it was it's it's so true it's it's too easy to do the easy thing but you don't get much from it and i was I was feeling, you know, at this time when I became celibate, I think what was going on inside of me was I felt really frustrated with myself because the culture we were in, it was so, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know. I have to make up the word. Sexualized. I guess that's a real word, sexualized. It was so sexualized that I I felt like I don't want to look at women as sex objects. I want to look at them as human beings. But... The culture was, the way the culture was working is that wasn't exactly how we were being groomed to see them. And it was very, it was very unpleasant and I, I hated it. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to be that way. And I think that's one of the reasons I like becoming celibate because I said, now that, that is no longer consideration. So that in dealing with women, I could actually be respectful because I've decided to control myself sexually. You know, unless I get married, that's another thing. But I was single. So um, that was really important for me. It felt really good. And I and I think our society and men need that to become real men and real fathers and real husbands. Because otherwise, you know, relationship between men and women, if it's if it's too much based on sex, then it doesn't last generally doesn't last. And there's kids and then single families and it's a big mess. Single parent families, it becomes a mess. So these were my these are my my realizations. But I have I also want to share what the road was like because as we mentioned I've been doing this for fifty years. What the road what probably people are thinking, well what was the road like after the first couple of years? Yeah. First couple of years you come out of this culture which was highly sexualized, you were part of it, you were frustrated, you wanted to give it up. So naturally there's inspiration impetus, you know, like you're running you're running the mile and you start running really fast. But what about the last 
the last minute of the mile. How are you running? And like when and, you the, the, now you you're not allowed to do it. Before it was like, well, I don't want to do it, but now yeah. it's like you're allowed, and it's like I've got nothing yeah. in the fridge now, so I'm all I'm thinking about is food. Yeah, and that's exactly what happened. At at a certain point, it was like again, it started from time to time to become even more attractive because I was fasting. Yes. So now I'm, I'm more hungry because I'm fasting. So that's where this whole support idea came in. That, that when you challenges, you need people who are supporting you. You need, you need mentors. You, you, these things are difficult to do, whether it's an addiction to drugs or sex or any kind of addiction, codependency or whatever. I don't know all the addictions that exist, but, <clears throat> or any kind of trauma you've been through and you're having difficulty coping, to have a support group of people who are coping with the same problem, it's irreplaceable. And we were doing this all on our own. It was just, you know, like me in my room, in my mind, and my desire, trying to fight it and deal with it. But once you bring it out and share it with other people trying to fight it, it's, just, it's, it's a totally different ballgame. It becomes much easier. So that's the that was the idea of this project we're working on. Okay. Support. You know, we could have all kinds of support for any. Some people want to become vegetarian and they have trouble being vegetarian. They're like, oh, I can't, I'm about to go to McDonald's, you know, call the 800 line, you know. Mm. You know, the vegetarian 800 line. What do I do now? I'm about to go order a veggie burger. <laughs> you know, it's just like everybody needs support because we're, we're weak, right? So, yeah. That was the idea. Mm. And, um, I think a lot of very sincere people who want to achieve something, although they're sincere, they need more than their sincerity. They need more support. So that, that was the idea. So that's what I try to do in, in all my teachings. And I just try to create an environment where you can find support for your spiritual practice mm. in, in different ways. Even in my books, they're all... Books are full of exercises yeah. to help yeah. you, you know, process and think and contemplate. Because that's very important in trying to achieve your goals. You contemplate, you evaluate, you're honest with yourself, you look at your your flaws and you, you, you meditate how to deal with them and you practically apply. So that's, mm. that's the strategy yeah. that I've yeah. been taking in, edu- in, in the kind of education I'm doing. It sounds like you're practical tools for um, dealing with themselves. You know, in Bhakti, we have this um, stage called Anartanavritti, right? And it's pretty difficult to navigate. Like you say, when you're on your own and you've just got your hearts full of these anartas, these unwanted things. I consider it's like I'm walking around with all these darts poking out of me, you know, and I don't want to pull them out because that hurts even more. You know, but if you were, as it said, that you can tolerate anything in good association, that was another thing. Probably. Oh, yeah. Nice one. Yeah. It's yeah. like if we go to this convention or we have these workshops weekly or daily or whatever, where we're all, you know, doing it together, it's kind of a different thing. Like you say, it's a different ball game. It's not just me on pain of pulling this thing out of my heart. It's like, no, we're all in this together. We're all doing this thing. 
And it's not actually as painful at all, right? When, you, when you're doing difficult work together. I was just cleaning the house with my housemates and I was, I was reflecting on how, how much I, I used to resent work, hard work. And chores, you know, as, as a teenager especially, but even, even in my adult years, sometimes I find myself being like resisting the, the uh, resisting um, responsibilities that I have, right? And when I reflect deeply on why that is, I see that there's almost this fear of physical pain, like I'll die. Like there's a, there's a little person in, in there going, you could die if you if you are in a physically uncomfortable situation, like cleaning windows, you know, and you have to do it thoroughly, you could actually die. That's what he's saying. So I guess what I'm getting at is that, but when we're all doing it together, it's actually yeah. fun. So, yeah. yeah. And also, another another amazing thing that I found in my life is when, if you have a problem and you're with somebody who doesn't have that problem, it makes your problem kind of just disappear or seem insignificant or sometimes seem completely stupid. Like, why would I have that problem? It right. It's it's like that person's like light to your darkness. Right. And, and, then, and then often what happens is like that consciousness that they have, just by their association, it gets by osmosis transferred into you and you start feeling like them. And then you're looking around and say, where did my problem go? Yeah. And you realize you just, you just kind of downloaded his consciousness by being around him. And you didn't have to do anything. You just had to be around him and you downloaded his consciousness. Now you're kind of thinking like him. And that was like a super quick way to overcome the problem. Of course, that may be a temporary measure, but when you, when you get a lot of that kind of association, that kind of friendship, that kind of group support, you're just, you're just downloading all the determination and all the sincerity and all the, the, the ways you need to think to conquer your problem from these other people. And so there's no question about the power of association and how it changes us, motivates us, inspires us. I mean, I've been alone for three months here. Well, I'm with my family, but used to have an office here. I have a studio over there. I spent most of my day alone, which usually I travel and I'm surrounded by people. And definitely I can feel the difference, obviously, you know, of, of, of sometimes I get a little lazy. And I, if there were 20 people around me, I definitely wouldn't be lazy. We would all, that energy would be there. So definitely association can, can make us different people, both in a good sense and a bad sense. Mm. Um, your your practice is and my practice also is mantra meditation um, we, we haven't even touched on that at all um, for those listeners who are totally unfamiliar with you know what is bhakti what what, what do these guys actually you know, what is the spiritual path that they're talking about um, all we've heard is that you know it's don't do this and don't do that right it's kind of that's <laughs> <don't>, <laughs> um, can you tell us a little bit about um, the Maha Mantra? Yeah, um, I'll tell my story first. 
So we go since I told my story of my Berkeley days, what was what was happening when I was going to school, the Hare Krishna devotees had a center that was one or two blocks from campus. So they were on campus every day chanting, like at the entrance to campus. So I'd see them every day. And then I started learning from them, studying Bhagavad Gita. So it started, It's at a certain point, it was like maybe four or five days a week, I was chanting with them, either in their temple or on the street. So I was doing a lot of chanting. And, and I was studying Bhagavad Gita with them. And maybe in four weeks or six weeks of doing that, I had completely refrained from taking any drugs. I had become celibate. And it wasn't conscious. I wasn't thinking, this is what I want to do. And I remember vividly waking up one day and thinking to myself, you know, you in so many weeks you haven't done this, in so many weeks you haven't done that. And then I thought, this is really interesting. Because I was getting elevated by that chanting, and it was so subtle I didn't realize it. But what was happening as I was becoming more self-satisfied, I was becoming happier and spiritually stronger, to the point that the desire to do these other things had been replaced by something better. So what I would like to say by this story is this chanting, I've done other kinds of meditation and spiritual practice, this chanting is by far... The chanting of the Maha Mantra, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram, Hare Hare, is by far the most powerful meditation or spiritual practice I have ever done and still continue to do. It has amazing effects. And whatever transformation I've seen in my life spiritually, and you know whatever good qualities I've seen come out of me, and whatever intelligence or insight or spiritual strength has come out of me, I would say it's come through me, from the mantra, through me, and, you know, just resonating with my soul, and then purifying me to such an extent that I start exhibiting traits that I never would ever imagine I could exhibit or develop. So, of course, you don't have to believe me, but... Um, I always, why don't you chant, try chanting for a week, but, you know, just see if it works for you. So that's my recommendation to everybody. You know, sit down every morning, chant a little bit, just see what happens. Chant that mantra. Just repeat it. Five, right. ten minutes. And um, I can give you some links to some guide uh, meditation. Make- and you're going higher in your consciousness, the result of that is you become detached. Mm. So you will experience that, a a blissful self-satisfaction, deeper self-satisfaction, overcoming unhappiness, depression, attachment, and so many things. So rather than tell you more, I would like to allure you into trying it. Beautiful. You can let us know how it goes. We'll give you that mantra and just chant it, sing it. And 
see what happens. Mahatma, thank you so much for joining us on this Soul on Fire podcast. Uh, your insights are invaluable. And um, yeah, look forward to, you know, um, seeing more of, of your your portfolio grow and flourish and and, um, yeah. and, and staying involved with your work. Um, I watch yeah. your um, daily reflection almost, uh, not every day um, lately, just, just I've got schoolwork, but I, there was a time when I watched it every day and I still find myself, you know. Oh, I forgot to tell everybody, every day on my Facebook page, my Facebook prof- professional page, Mahatma Das, there's a video about some thought to kind of open you up and get you through the day or get you through your life or get you through many lives. And my website, mahatmadas.com, there's an ocean of information for those who want to practice spiritual life. Awesome. Great. Fantastic. Thank you again. And we'll see you soon. Okay. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna.